All right, well, good morning again. Great to be back with you. I want to thank Stephen for preaching last week on Hope Incarnate. And this week as we continue our series on Advent, the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus showing up on the scene, uh, we're going to focus on love, love incarnate. Uh, We'll be in Titus chapter 3 today as we look at this idea. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some nearby, so you can grab one of those black Bibles, and we're on page 999, so that's easy to remember. 999, Titus chapter 3, as Stephen and I were preparing for the series, we read some from Athanasius' book uh, on the Incarnation, uh, which is probably one of the earliest theological treatises ever written. I mean, he focuses a lot on how the Incarnation, uh, literally Jesus, God, taking on flesh, becoming a man, living in our place, dying in our place, rising from the dead, all of that, Jesus showing up here on earth is central to our faith. And so at Christmas time, we have an opportunity to celebrate this as the whole culture is thinking about baby Jesus. As Christians, we can go deeper and look at what the Word says and understand what that really means, Jesus being born for us. So we'll uh, focus in on this in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I like this text because uh, Paul gives a lot of instructions on what it's supposed to look like in a local church. The book of Titus was written, if you read the whole thing, it's, it's not very long. If you read the whole thing, it's instructions on how a church should function, right? This is what a church should look like. And he's giving specific instructions to uh, the leaders, to Titus, but also to the community on this is how it's supposed to happen. Love is supposed to be fleshed out in this way. This is love incarnate in a local church. So chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That's the incarnation verse. That's the Advent verse. That's the Jesus showing up on the scene verse right there. Let me read it again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So again, he has all kinds of specific instructions, all centered around the hub of this wheel, which is verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Let me pray for us and see what God has for us this morning. God, we ask for you to teach us. We ask for you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask for you to Uh, Make your word alive for us. God, uh, take away our our stony hearts, our hard hearts. Give us hearts of flesh. Help us to be open-minded that you have something to say. 
Um, We pray that you would shape us. We need you. And we know that you love us because you proved that through Jesus. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about four years ago, my wife and I were engaged in a church planter assessment. Uh, We do these every year or so uh, through Acts 29 with the church planting organization. And what we get to do is uh, basically read like 50 pages of applications and do long uh, four-hour interview process uh, with potential church planters. And in that process, we try to help them to see if if they are really ready to, to lead a church, to do some of the things that Titus has talked about here. And so in those conversations, we're always talking with future church planters about abstract ideas of they know God loves them and they love this city, so they want to bring a community of love, a new church, to that city, right? So there's always this abstract conversation going on, different models. You know, a lot of times they're disgruntled youth pastors, you know, that want to do it the right way and start over again and and that kind of thing. And so a lot of times there's just abstract talk about right ways, wrong ways, different methods, how to set up communities of love. We had the joy four years ago of meeting Kyle Black, who lives not far from here, who was working uh, at a church in Lampasas, wanting to start a new community of love because he believed that God loved him. And he wanted to start that new community in a new neighborhood that was developing in Kempner, a lot of building that was happening on that side of Copper's Cove. And he just had a passion to see God's love incarnated in a new community, a new church there. Well, it's years later now. He interned with us for a couple of years, and me and him have had endless conversations about what it might look like. He came and did life with us as a church for a couple of years, so he got to observe you loving each other. He got to love you and be loved by you, and he got to see what that looks like, and now they've started this church in Kempner. Two weeks ago, I got to preach out there, and it is so incredible to actually meet real people that love each other and want to see the love of God spread in their community. It is, it is so far beyond just the abstract conversations we've been having, right? It's this, whole, this, this feeling of joy that I had, this overwhelming uh, pleasure of getting to meet these people, to getting to laugh with them, getting to preach at them, getting to pray with them, getting to talk to them, worship with them. These are real people. They really love each other. They really love their city. They really want to see the love of Jesus incarnated through them and through this community. And what I want you to understand is that we have that same job. And actually, I want to praise you. As a community, you help to form that community. By loving Kyle and Lindsay and encouraging them, you've helped to multiply love in this new community but we, we still have ongoing work to do, right? God still calls us to keep that going, to continue to love each other, to continue to love our neighbors, to continue to love our city. So the whole book of Titus is about setting up these communities of love because God loved us. He came into our world. He moved into our neighborhood and loved us, and then he sends us out to love others. That, that's, that's kind of the big idea of the book of Titus. And in the first section of what we're looking at, Here in chapter 3, what Paul talks about is what love looks like at the street level. What does love look like at the street level, at the everyday level, at the living in a normal city, not in churchy language, right? It's not just, Paul doesn't just say, uh, go to seven Bible studies a week and make sure you're in church every time the doors open, right? But Paul fleshes out love in in very normal everyday terms. Look at verses 1 through 3 to see what love looks like. 
verses 1 through 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. This, is, this looks like obeying the people that are in charge of you, which I know, I know is kind of hard, right? Because sometimes the people in charge of you don't always do a good job being in charge of you. Uh, but part of what it looks like to love our community and to love those around us is to honor the authorities that God has put in charge over us. Be submissive to rulers. Be obedient and be ready for every good work. Verse 2, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says this is what it looks like to actually manifest, to incarnate this love of God. We believe at Christmas time, God took on flesh, was born as a baby, He was love incarnate. He gave himself for us. And when we believe that, then we should live differently and we should incarnate love in our communities. And it should look like obeying our bosses, right? Simple things. It should look like being kind to each other, showing courtesy, he says, avoiding quarreling, not speaking evil of each other. It's really very simple when you think about it, but sadly it's it's really very hard because of our own sin nature. I have a picture here to help you understand the New Testament view of what this is, and it's fruit. Uh, We're studying Galatians together as a community, and we'll go back to it after our kind of Christmas observation in December. So in January, we'll go back to Galatians again, and we'll get to Galatians 5, where Paul talks about Christian character, love, and joy, and peace being fruit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit's involvement in your life. So Paul here in Titus is saying, this is what love looks like. God loved us, so we are going to be submissive. We're going to be respectful. We're going to be kind. In Galatians, he says, God loves us, so we're going to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're going to care for others. We're going to have joy. We're going to have peace. And again, Paul is making sure we understand that this comes from God's love for us, which we'll look at in a second, that love of God appearing on the scene. But there's real fruit that is born out of that. How many of you have uh, ever been blackberry or raspberry picking? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you done that. Have any of you done it here locally, here in Texas? A few of you. Okay. It's only like a one-week season here. I, I know like in other, like in states where you have four seasons, it goes on all summer. But here, if you hurry, there's places around Central Texas you can do it in May, I think. May for just like a week. And it, it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. I remember when we went, our youngest was, was quite a bit younger. So this was like 10 years ago. Uh, she was three or four, and I remember just the blackberry juice just dripping down her face. You know, it was just, she was loving it. You know, we were just picking them right off the vine. Um, it was a lot of fun. There's nothing like fresh fruit that's wholesome and good. And Paul says in Galatians, that's what our lives should be like. Here in Titus, Paul's saying that it should look like respect. It should look like courtesy. It should look like kindness. The analogy that he uses throughout the book of Titus is this word he uses, sound doctrine. And sound doctrine literally means uh, the kind of teaching that helps life to grow. So I'm not necessarily just importing the, the fruit language from Galatians onto Titus here. All the way through Titus, he's saying, give yourself to sound doctrine, fertilized doctrine, healthy, nurturing doctrine, right? Teaching about Jesus that helps life to grow. So my question is, is that kind of fruit growing in your life? Is that kind of fruit growing around you, through you? And I would say if it's not, we need to take a second look at at the root of our life. What's the root of our life? Are we rooted in the love of God that he's going to look at here uh, in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7? 
verse 3 gives us kind of the other side of our attitude towards those around us, right? Sometimes it's hard to be respectful of bad leaders, right? Sometimes it's hard to show courtesy towards people that don't know how to drive, right? Um, That are rude to you. So in verse 3, Paul reminds us, he says in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And I know what you might be thinking. Well, if you're self-righteous like me, I'm thinking, no, I wasn't that bad, right? That's quickly, I think, I'm not that bad, come on. But this is the Apostle Paul, right? He says he kept the law perfectly. Paul's including himself. He's not just talking about the the bad people in Crete, right? Titus was the book of Titus was written to people in Crete. It's kind of like you know Las Vegas or New York City or something, right? A lot of sinners. He, he's saying he's including himself in this. He's saying he's he was bad too. Saying even though I kept the law perfectly, even though I was religious, even though I was this religious person zealous keeping zealously keeping the law, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. How can a Religious person be a slave to a passion and a pleasure? Well, maybe you're like me and you really like to impress people and please people. Maybe I could be a slave to pleasing people but not really to God. Maybe I could be a slave to looking religious but not really loving God. Maybe I could be a slave to impressing myself and those around me with law-keeping like Paul was, but I'm not really a slave to God. So Paul's saying all of us were in this boat. All of us were in this boat, whether you're religious or you're wild and crazy, like the people in Crete that he's writing to here, Titus, he's saying all of us were in that boat. All of us were in that boat. And what love looks like is a different sort of behavior. It's actually caring for the other. We care for the other because we believe God cared for us first. Uh, That's what changes the root so that we bear then the fruit of what love looks like in our communities. We actually start to live differently. I had a a professor that shared with me, and I've shared this with you all multiple times, um, what he called the platinum rule. Uh, You've all heard of the golden rule, right? The golden rule is love others as you'd have them love you. And then my professor talked about the platinum rule. The platinum rule is uh, you will love others to the degree that you believe God loves you. Does that make sense? So like if you love love people badly, that's because you don't really believe God loves you. That's what my professor would argue, and I think Paul would agree with that here. This is, this is what love should look like, respect and submission and kindness and courtesy, and it looks like that the more and more we believe that God has shown kindness and mercy and love to us. The more we believe that, the more it comes out in how we live. So my question for us as a community of love is, does love look like this in our lives? As a group, as individuals, does love look like this? Do we manifest, do we incarnate love in Colleen, Texas, in Bell County, wherever you live? Do, do you incarnate love in your community? Like what, what would happen if you disappeared? Well, think about it this way. What would happen if Grace Bible Church disappeared? If all of us, all 400 to 1,000 depending on the day, right? Just all of us just disappeared and poof, we're gone. Would the community care? Would we be missed? Have we been making an impact of love? around us? It's a great question to ask ourselves. My assistant pastor started a little side business. Some of you might have seen it online. It's the iheartclean.com. Any of y'all seen that? Some of us have some of these t-shirts. I know Heather's got one. I've got one. It says iheartclean, right? And I love their, uh, 
their little motto. Their motto is, did I say that weird? Motto, motto. <laughs> this is it. It's say it till you mean it. It's going to take you a minute to get it. Say it till you mean it. iheartcolleen.com. See, as Christians, we're called to love our community. We're called to be an incarnation of love. Last week, Stephen preached to us from Philippians 2. And he said, Jesus didn't consider it robbery. He didn't consider it something to be grasped, his equality with God. But he very easily left his position in heaven and came down to where we are. Out of love. To love our community. The world. The world of sin and death. He came into our neighborhood of sin and death to show love to us. He purposed to love us. It wasn't just a feeling. We always talk about love like it's just a feeling, you know, you can trip into. It's like a puddle. Oh, I fell into love. In the New Testament, love is something you do. We're called to love people. It's a verb. It's an action. We're called to love our community. Do you love your community? Do you love the people around you? It's, it's a command based on the love that he's shown us. So again, he, he loves us, so then we love others. So that's what it looks like. And then this is where love starts. It starts with his love for us. His love for us is what drives us to love others. His love for us drives us to love others. Look at verse 4. This is kind of the big Advent passage. This is the big uh, incarnation verse in this text. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So again, the things we just talked about in the first section of this is what love looks like. Be nice, be obedient, be respectful, be courteous, courteous, be kind. All these things, doing these things, we don't do those to trick God into loving us, right? That's how we think that so often in religious circles. Like if I do enough good things, I'll trick God. He has to like me then. He has to bless me then. No, Paul says here, he didn't save us because of the good things we did. He saved us because of his mercy. He didn't save us because of the good works that we did. He saved us because of his mercy. So the love of God showing up incarnated on the scene is a love that's initiated by him. Because he initiates love for us, therefore we initiate love for other people. Therefore we show respect and kindness and all of these things. I love this word, appear. Very simple word in English, but the Greek word has kind of a comic book feel in the first century. I was a comic book freak when I was a kid. Um, so the idea would have been used in first century literature for the Greek gods showing up on the scene as a hero to save the day at the last minute. So like when I was a, a kid, one of my favorite songs to sing was the Mighty Mouse song, right? I don't know if you remember that. It was like, here I am to save the day, Mighty Mouse. You remember, y'all, y'all know that one? That might predate some of you. I wanted to be that hero, right? I wanted to be the superhero that shows up on the scene. And Paul says Jesus is that hero. He's the one that shows up on the scene. This word appears is epiphino, which is a very specific word, again, used in uh, Greek God literature for the guy showing up at the last minute and saving the day. He appears. Again, we use the word advent, the, the appearance of someone or something notable or important. We use the word incarnation. For God took on flesh. He became one of us. He moved in to our neighborhood. And here it says, God's love, his, his goodness, his loving kindness showed up on the scene. And that changes everything. He's the hero that changes everything. And, and this is where love starts. Again, love doesn't start with us. We don't love each other and get our stuff together in order to trick God into loving us. Love starts with his love for us. He shows up on the scene. 
and we respond then in love. And now Paul's going to flesh this out here in more detail. Let's look a little bit at the details of 4, 5, 6, and 7. He uses this comic book language of, bam, the hero shows up on the scene, and then he fleshes it out. He gives us a lot of good theology here. He says, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, again, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, right? So we didn't deserve saving. Uh, We didn't love each other so much that we became savable. We were unsavable, and God saved us by his mercy, right? We deserve judgment, and God gives us grace. And he says, how? How does he do this? By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So salvation, we often think in American terms because of the history of revivalism in America, we often sadly think of salvation as this moment where you hear the gospel and you pray and ask God to forgive you, right? That's the beginning of a relationship for most of us. But salvation in the New Testament is usually more full than that. It's talking about that, the beginning. It's also talking about your growth and holiness. It's also talking about the end when you go to heaven and you're not a sinner anymore and you're glorified and all things are made right and there's no more crying, no more pain, right? Salvation is often talking about the whole process in the New Testament. So he talks about this is salvation, this whole thing that God's doing, and then he gives us specifics here. He says, specifically, by the washing of regeneration, right? He gives us new life. Regeneration means new life and he washes away our sins. We symbolize that in baptism. And then he says, renewal, of the Holy Spirit. So that's the ongoing process. We often talk about these two sides of the coin of justification. We're declared just. God says, uh, I adopt you. I make you my own. You're now righteous in my eyes. You're forgiven. Your, your sins are washed away. The washing of rebirth, the washing of regeneration. And then I'm going to renew you day by day. I'm going to help you trust me more. Every day, I'm going to help you trust me more. I'm going to help you believe every day that you really are a prince. And because you're a prince, You can be like Jesus and live as a pauper for now as you serve others in love, knowing you're going to return to your inheritance and and live as a prince again. And so the washing of regeneration, that kind of beginning justification, beginning point in time, and then ongoing renewal of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 6, now he fleshes some things out, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Right? So there can be these sorts of greater experiences in the Christian life, right? We're all different, and we experience spiritual life in different ways. So that's possible, and that happens a lot of times. People report to me different highs and lows in their spiritual life. But what we want to be clear about is, especially Ephesians 1 reinforces this, the Holy Spirit's given to us in salvation, right? You're not like halfway saved and you need to get the Holy Spirit later. You're, you're given the Holy Spirit at the moment of faith, is what Ephesians 1 says. And so here Titus 3 is backing that up, We're given the Holy Spirit through salvation and he renews us day by day. Now you might have big ups and downs. You might have this high of like, well, I really feel like I know God now. You know, there might be be increased blessing or increased experiences of that. But you have the Holy Spirit if you know Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. His job is to help you to pray, Romans 8 says, help you grow, help you trust Jesus more. And in verse 7 he says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So justified, being declared righteous, what we've been studying in Galatians over the past few months, we're declared righteous. That means when God looks at you, if you trust in Jesus, he delights in you. That means he loves you. No matter how self-righteous you are and no matter how shameful you feel. 
He delights in you because of Jesus. He loves you. He, he looks at you as his dearly beloved child. That's what he's saying here, justified by grace. So he says we're justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, that means we're this prince, this princess that inherits the whole world, that we're looking forward to future where all things are made right. In counseling situations, I often talk through what this looks like because what we need to believe is that we're a prince that gets to live like a pauper for a while as we serve others in love, and then we get to return, just like Jesus, to this glorious home. Often we get that backwards, and we feel like a pauper, and we're, we're clawing and scratching and elbowing others so we can become a prince. He says, being a prince, being a princess, that's granted to you. Being an heir, that's given to you by grace. It's a gift. Again, going back to verses 4 and 5, it's, it's not because of works that we've done, but because of his mercy. So because of God's kindness, he, he treats you like Jesus. He gives you the inheritance of Jesus. He gives you love. And then because of that love, you give away love to other people. So because the kindness and love of God has appeared because of where love has started, we begin living it out in our lives. So my question is for you, first of all, do you believe it? Do you believe this gospel that your sins can be forgiven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Because Jesus took our sins away. Or do you still think that you've got to take care of your sins yourself? Do you still think that you've got to atone for your own sins? Or do you believe that Jesus atoned for you? Do you believe that he was a good enough sacrifice? Or are you like, it says in Hebrews, going to trample on the blood of the Son of God and say, no, Jesus isn't strong enough to save me. I've got to save myself. That's really the question for us. The last thing that Paul shows us in the last few verses is that we should live out tough love. There's an ongoing work here. There's an ongoing work of, of believing it and then working it out in our life. Verse 8, he says this, The saying is trustworthy. Um, the saying is trustworthy. That's everything he's just been talking about, Right? the grace of God poured out for us. Saying, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Again, this is life-giving. It's, it's nurturing. There, fruit will be born out of these things. If you devote yourself to these things, life will happen in your communities, in yourselves. He goes on in verse 9, and he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, there is some degree to which this is talking about just anybody that distracts us from God's grace and life-giving uh, doctrine teaching that promotes love. But really, specifically in the book of Titus, he's, he's primarily talking about leaders because throughout the book, he's been talking to Titus about how to elect teachers and leaders from within the body. Right? He's saying, these are the kinds of men that you want to be elders and overseers, those that devote themselves to teaching that promotes life. So here's a way to reframe this. In verse 9, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law for they're unprofitable and worthless. There's a kind of teacher that just loves to learn. Uh, there, there's a kind of doctrine lover that just loves to be smart. That's one of the most dangerous things that can happen in the life of a church. Now, we don't want to swing the other way. I, I would say in our cultural 
our culture generally, we've swung to the extreme of uh, because that can happen, let's not worry about doctrine at all, right? So let's just be dumb Christians, right? I think that's kind of where our culture has gone. We don't study the Bible. We don't try to learn. We don't want to grow in doctrine. So don't swing to the other direction. Study God's Word. Learn doctrine. Learn the teaching of the Scriptures, but make sure it's bounded by love. Is it the kind of teaching that promotes love? That would be a way to frame this. Does it give life? Again, I'd encourage you to just read through the whole book of Titus this week since we're studying this because it's, I mean, it's only two pages in my Bible. I think you can do that, okay? Just read through the whole thing and you'll hear this, this theme of sound doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and the idea there in the Greek is teaching that gives life. So uh, if the teachers that you listen to like to show off how smart they are and love is not growing out of that, those are the wrong teachers. And part of the way a, a body uh, grows in health is we hold each other accountable to that. Like, are we really loving each other well? Or are we just trying to show off how smart we are? Are we trying to just engage in dissensions and arguments and show off how much we know about the law or these genealogies or these controversies? That's a dangerous, dangerous direction to go in. I have a picture here. So we think about the hard work of devoting ourselves to these things. I have a picture of a dandelion. Um, little girl blowing the dandelion. I don't think the little girl is green in real life, but that's how she looks on the slide. I apologize. Um, so how many of you, we'll just take a vote, and I'm not going to judge you, okay? So you don't have to vote if you don't want to, but I'd like you to. Um, raise your hand if you pull your dandelions up by the roots. Anybody here? Okay. Raise your hand if you just like mow them down, knock the tops off, blow the seeds everywhere. Okay, cool, cool. Now you know, again, I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you, but you, you know if you just knock the tops off, you're planting dandelions, right? You know that? Okay. You're just planting more seeds. But if you dig it up from the root, that's good dandelion death that's taking place there, okay? Um, famous Puritan writer John Owen wrote this book called The Mortification of Sin. I've been reading it for a few years now. It'll probably take me until I die to finish it because he writes these long Puritan sentences that are kind of hard to follow. But there's, there's really good meat in there. And he has this one phrase where he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So tough love, tough love on the one hand is not tolerating teachers that are devoted more to themselves than to the gospel, right? That's part of what Paul was talking about here. Warn these people, don't have anything to do with them. But he's also talking about just the daily devotion to these things. The daily devotion, look at verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy. All the stuff about the grace of God, it's trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on the hard work of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians. Of doing the hard work of digging these sins up by the roots and believing in God, trusting this gospel of grace that he loves us. So here's what this looks like in our, in our life of sin, right? So forget dandelions, right? You can grow all the dandelions you want. If you want to plant dandelions, that's great. I'm not judging you. Um, but I would encourage you, when it comes to sin in your life, to go after the root, right? Don't just lop the top off the sin. So like when a sin happens, um, when you get upset about something, when you despair about something, don't just say, I'm not going to do that again. Think about what the root is. To put it in the context of love, 
what are you loving in that moment? What are you loving in that moment? Like, I'll just share my own sin. I, I am uh, both gifted and sin in the area of people-pleasing, right? So as a pastor, I'm pretty good at caring for people, but then in my flesh, I can fall into despairing if I don't feel like everybody around me is happy. Because see how, see how that tips? That tips from I'm not just loving people because God loves me, but all of a sudden now, I desperately want everyone around me to be happy. And so then I begin to despair when they're not happy or I start to live my life out of balance to make people happy, to please people. And so if I'm never able to get down to the root of that and begin recognizing that I need to love Jesus more than making people happy, then my life will be out of control. And I'll get lots of reward for that kind of out of controlness as a pastor, right? That's the scary thing. So you need to recognize the roots of your sin so that you can, you can dig it up. Because the goal is that we'd love Jesus more than our sin. Like if it's, a, if it's an addiction for you, what is it that you love? What is it that you're seeking? What is it that you're treasuring? In those moments before you sin, in those moments during your sin, no, no matter what kind of emotional symptom, right? No matter what kind of top there is to that weed, you've got to get down to the bottom. Don't just top, chop the top off and go, I'm not going to do that again, and then you're doing it again next week. What's the root? What are you loving in that moment? What are you, what are you loving in that moment? And it's ongoing work. This is tough love. Believing that God loves us, so we begin living according to that instead of according to our flesh, instead of according to our own false gods that we're worshiping. I, I can't worship people-pleasing. I can't worship pleasure. I can't worship money. I can't worship success because those things are just going to result in more sin. I'm just planting more dandelions than in my life. I have to dig down to the root and begin to love Jesus more instead of loving my own sin. And that's what the process looks like. I want to conclude with a a quote from a a song. Uh, The Shins are a band that I I like a lot. I just love their songwriting. They have a a song called 40 Mark Strasse. It's a German word. I don't really know how to say it. Um, But here's the lyric. Here's the lyric. He says, Because every single story is a story about love, both the overflowing cup and the painful lack thereof. That is all of our stories. Every single story is a story about love, both the overflowing cup and the painful lack thereof. We are incredibly shaped by the ways that we've been hurt, by the the painful lack of love that we've experienced in different places in our lives. And we have an option. We, We have an option when we experience that painful lack of love to then start worshiping a false God so that we can take control ourselves and solve the problem with our own flesh. Or or we can believe in that overflowing cup of love that Jesus offers to us. That's the option we have. Every moment of our life, that's what love looks like, is working that out every day. I want to pray for us, and we're going to share in communion together as we remember the cup that Jesus poured out for us. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you proved your love to us by sending Jesus. We thank you now that we as a community get to re-covenant with you, to remember that you uh, broke your body for us, that you spilled your blood for us. And I pray that you would help us to remember you well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.